Welcome everyone to episode 15 of the Greater European Talks. My name is Philippe and joining you this time from the UK, not from Belgium. And with me, I have a good friend of mine, uh, Mariam from Lebanon. If you want to say hello. Hi, Philippe. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm very good. I hope you're well too. I am great. <laughs> great. So it's just going to be Mariam and I today. So we're going to go a bit more in depth into the topics we want to discuss. So today's region is the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, always a lot of turbulent politics and always quite important for both Greater Europe and I mean the the, the, the people of the countries they're in. Uh, today we're going to talk about two specific topics. I'm going to introduce a little bit more about the conflict in Libya, uh, Erdogan, and uh, indeed LTC have both been getting into very heated debates over the Libyan crisis. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how it's become so internationalized right now, reaching all the way from Sudan to Paris, really. Um, and a little bit about where I think it's going to go in the future. And then afterwards, Mariam's going to be talking uh, a bit more about the sectarian debate in Lebanon and how it has kind of developed over the past few months. And, well, I'm going to be quizzing her at least about where she thinks it's going to go. That's the real question of it all. Starting a little bit in Libya, the real topic that breaks us through is that Erdogan today actually condemned uh, LCC and uh, Egypt's actions, um, stating that such a thing could lead to an even greater conflict. Um, this is in response to two things, really. Firstly, is Turkey's own arming, arming of the Government of National Accord in the West, which has been highly successful. The government has now managed to push um, the LNA, or backed by General Haftar's forces, all the way to essentially the midpoint in the country, capturing important oil fields, important airfields, capturing very crucial cities, um, and very much bolstering its own uh, situation. And in response to this, Egypt and Haftar especially have started threatening further um, militarization of some of the tribesmen in the east. Um, and areas controlled by the LNA, which very much has turned what was almost a semi-internationalized conflict, where there were some groups getting involved, to a pure, almost proxy conflict. A lot of people have been measuring this to Syria, potentially, in how especially Turkey's getting involved, Russia is also involved, although on the opposite side. Um, and then from European sides, it's also a little more confusing and complicated as Italy always backed the GNA in the West, um, was one of the first to do so. Uh, but France, actually, one of the major influences, certainly the EU, have been backing Haftar for a while um, and have been doing so since Francois Hollande. And so Turkey's definitely seen itself as one of the main benefactors in this and is trying to use all of its potential allies through NATO, for example, um, to try and back this, whereas France, for example, has been using its clout in the EU and some of the new EU operations to further its own um, devices. And at the same time, you have very important allies of Haftar, like the UAE, who are blocking Libyan oil, which was their one kind of hope to try and restart the economy in the West. So it is definitely a complicated situation. Um, I'd say that this most recent condemnation really narrows down who are the main players involved, which is definitely Turkey and Egypt now. Um, they are each backed by their own forces, but Turkey has boots on the ground in Egypt. 
um sorry in not in egypt hopefully not in egypt that'll be a very dangerous situation has its own boots on the ground in libya and uh egypt whilst not having necessarily boots on the ground has been supplying a uh, haftar with weapons a market for for years now so they have really become the main players involved and that's where i want to leave it for the first introduction um but i guess now what i want to kind of ask you mariam is um well firstly obviously with any comments or questions of it really um but it seems to me that there's a possibility that the conflict could escape Libyan borders quite soon, um, either into sort of direct condemnation or conflict between Turkey and Egypt or through other allies. How much do you think this could be a possibility? We have a history in the region of conflict spilling over from one country to another. So I think it's a very, I think it's a possibility. I think it's something that's going to happen, especially if it's not controlled soon. Uh, and it's not because... It has nothing to do with, um, I'm not going to go into conspiracy theories, but because the region itself is so volatile that there's not enough support from the surrounding countries. And we have a tendency for conflicts to spill over into other countries. And it often reaches other countries as well. So a conflict that happens in Libya could ultimately reach, you know, somewhere pretty far away from it, not to, mm-hmm. not to mention any country. So yeah, I think it, I think it might happen. And it's very likely, but, but only because there's a historical pattern of this occurring. Yeah, agreed, agreed. I think it's interesting to see um, the UAE has been trying to get other countries a lot further involved. It actually tried to hire Sudanese mercenaries to go into Libya without them knowing they were going into Libya, actually, on the side of Haftar. And it's quite interesting to see the Sudanese rebelling against this, saying, no, how dare you, we refuse to get involved, Um, which I think is at least one sort of positive aspect to it. But I guess one country that's been for better or worse so important in the middle east and north african region um that has not made itself clear is definitely the us which is from time to time it backs the lna from time to time it backs the gna um haftar as you have to remember was a, in the us for a significant amount of time um after the libyan civil war and before coming back as as a general to support the libyan national army um and so i think he tries to use his credibility with the US administration to avoid it getting involved. But it is clear that whatever side the US gets involved on will have a significant um, boost to it. And it's almost perplexing to see why, <laughs> why for once, it's not getting as further involved. It might be also because it's balancing between NATO, um, as of course, Turkey and France have definitely been over loggerheads over which should be the, the main country, the main North Atlantic ally involved. Um, but I also think it's just because of the lack of thought in the U.S. administration over how much it cares. It's been focusing on other quick solution conflicts, essentially, such as Kosovo or, well, I'm not sure you can call it a quick solution conflict, but Syria, where, to be honest, Trump has been looking a lot more into quick policy wins. And Libya is not, I think, a quick policy win the U.S. can try to hope for. So it gets, so it leaves it, really. Um, but. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one to see how the U.S. isn't there, but how others are also refusing to get drawn in. Um, I would have expected probably a lot more other countries. I think I can, I, 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 I have a little comment here. Usually the United States, I mean, from the way we see it in the region, the, when the, the United States only intervenes when the conflict spills over mm. and it spirals out of control. And tying this back to your first question about the possibility of it spilling over into different regions, the minute I believe that this conflict, obviously the United States 
has a grip on the situation. That something's going on, even if it's not publicized. There's a lot of policy making going on. There's a lot of decision making going on. Uh, I mean, I, I believe there was a letter uh, from the U.S. embassy addressed to Libya the other day. But when it comes to like if actual intervention, immediate intervention, that doesn't really show until the crisis becomes international. Not to say that the crisis in Libya isn't international, but it's still pretty much internal. Mm, uh, yeah, it's still exactly. an internal conflict. Uh, when other countries start interfering, then the United States starts, let's say, raising its voice. Uh, and it's kind of a matching game. And yeah. that's been a pattern as well in the region where they, we know the United States is there. We know they're going to intervene. We expect them to when it becomes a matter of regional urgency. And mm -hmm when let's say saving needs to come into question because then they can exercise any policies under that's true yeah. the brand under like the flag or, or the big branch or title of saving the region i see yeah yeah i think that's definitely true um i mean i i would always i i always thought that it becoming internationalized was the the u.s getting involved made a conflict internationalized rather than it was internationalized and then the u.s came in it is, it is, but I mean, there's always, there's more, more, yeah, th there's true. more to come for sure. They can intervene in much harsher ways and it can become something very similar to what happened in Syria. And that is, that's true. The U S didn't really get involved until it really did. And I think that's when a spillover is going to happen into other regions. Yeah. 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 Well, in that sense, I think we should definitely put more emphasis on seeing how Turkey and Egypt are going to react because Although Turkey is involved, it's a NATO ally, and the US would not really care enough about interfering against a NATO ally. But as Egypt gets involved significantly, I think the US would start seeing freedom banners starting to be unfurled, uh, essentially. I also wonder how the nature of the, the Libyan crisis um, changes the US response. It being, of course, originally a, uh, a UK and French um, mission against Gaddafi. Um, with the US sort of not very fond of this, but not really willing to stop it. I wonder if that's also kind of contextualized their their view of Libya, seeing it, uh, well, it's a European's problems now. Um, why should we get involved? I think, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the Libyan com conflict is of great importance to Europe, but it's not really uh, something you can contest about because the approach so far has been let's build sustainable peace. Let's find out what these people want and let's find out how we can solve it. And I, I mean, as long as mm -hmm. it's, and again, this goes back to the fact that it's still an internal conflict and they're trying to contain it as much as they can. Yeah. Uh, when other countries get an itch and decide they want to push forward, uh, that that's when it doesn't, that's when it stops being an issue of sustainable peace. And that's when other countries are seen as, an obstacle to sustainable peace, to the sustainable peace that they're trying to build. Yeah. Um, and and that, that flows into all of the policies, the migratory policies, the violent extremism in the country, everything they're trying to do to combat these issues um, becomes impossible. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, it, it's, it's honestly from the way I see it, the response, international response to the crisis in Libya has been slow, Maybe uh, I would say slow. I think they don't know what they're going to do. And I think they don't want a, rep a rep repetition of what happened in other countries in the region. And that seems to be where we're heading. That's true. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely.
And I think it's a final comment I'll make before we move on to the next topic. Um, yeah, the, it's been completely lackluster, the international response, really. There hasn't been nearly enough done. They've only properly decided, and even then decided is a strong word, to stop foreign weapons coming to the region this year. And again, that almost none of it has actually happened. They're still, it's essentially a useless uh, arms embargo. Um, and as you mentioned, like the, the migratory policies as well, I think Europe has just happily pushed along its border to the coast. And as long as people don't leave that, they don't really care as much. So it's a, it's a problematic one. But still, I think it's a very good point. You mentioned how the US is probably going to start raising its voice as soon as it gets more internationalized. Um, I would be surprised if that's the next few steps, really, especially as soon as Erdogan starts viewing the benefits of his policy in Libya, which he's already kind of been one of the current victors. I used uh, air quotes there for listeners. Um, and if he sees it as one of the positive aspects of his intervention, he might keep going. And then the Egyptians might also object to this in more military ways. But um, it's definitely development to see. I think one of the things when it comes to Libya, and I know that was your last intervention, but there's something that's important here, and it's that there's the concept of a power vacuum. Yes, definitely. Of course. Since Gaddafi. Mm -hmm. So the, the concept of a power vacuum, it, it's like a golden key mm. for everyone. Uh, and it's un and underneath the power vacuum, you have energy as a prize. Yeah. So when you, when you, when you take a look at their, their interventions, let's say, uh, they always mask their interventions with the power vacuum, which is something also very common in the region. Um, and then they also like tight, tight. And, and then there's also like the threat of energy and, and the oil fields and, and whatnot. So, I, I mean, it's complicated and they know it's complicated. I think they're trying and they're not sure what's going to happen next. Yeah, it's complicated, but at the same time, it's so simple. <laughs> there's a power uh -huh, vacuum, exactly. there's oil. That's the simplicity of it, but everything that goes from it is complicated. No, definitely, definitely. Well, thank you. And I guess now um, let's move on to the next topic. Maram, if you want to sort of introduce what you want to discuss and talk about, and I will, uh, yeah. Okay, so... Uh, try, I'm, try my best, really. <laughs> I'm going to talk about something that's a little bit, you know, uh, less complicated and less, uh, less violent, but it's equally violent in terms of the effects on the local communities. And it's sectarianism in the Middle East, but in Lebanon particularly. Um, so just a quick introduction after Lebanon gained its independence from France in 1943, um, there have been traces of sectarianism. But and Lebanon today is known to be religiously diverse. We have 18 officially recognized religious sects across the country. And in theory, these sects coexist in peace. However, there is no secret that hostilities exist between these religions and even between same sects of the same religion. And the age-old question is, who is at fault for the persistence of the sectarian conflict? It's important to note that sectarianism played a huge, huge role in accelerating the civil war, even sparking it. Um, and the civil war didn't end that long ago. But till this day, we need to ask, is it our fault as the citizens of the country? Or is it the fault of the ruling class? Are they to blame? Mm -hmm. are, are the patronage networks that they set up that replace state-run social services to blame? Or is it the educational sector, the banking sector, us as citizens? There's no doubt that today the younger generation um, is significantly and notably less sectarian. But here's the thing. 
our elections uh, are, are, are we, we have a power sharing system uh, and that's after the Taif mm -hmm. agreement and even though we have a power sharing system in the latest elections we had a chance to elect secular individuals who had a secular agenda who want to separate religion from the state and not all of the candidates, I, I think there was only one candidate who, who, who got a seat. And even then, there's it was contested whether or not she got the seat because of her secular policies and her agenda. as a they, they don't run as a secular entity, but rather as a civil society member. And just goes to show you how yep, deeply rooted sectarianism is in our society, that when you run for elections, just to say that I'm secular, you say, I'm a member of the civil society, and that's the way it should be. So that's a general introduction about sectarianism in Lebanon. It has recently come to a burning point uh, on October 17, 2019, which is when the, let's say, revolution, uh, because its definition has been contested widely across the country, started. And the slogan was, and everyone was chanting, all of them means all of them. And um, in the country, the ruling powers are... Uh, they're based on religion. So the, the, the political parties adhere to a certain ideology or religion. So when we came, when, when everyone, when people are hungry mm -hmm. and they're on the streets and they're saying all of them means all of them, at the, for, for, for a short period of time, we really thought that we broke the chains of sectarianism. But after the resignation of the prime minister at the time, uh, it seemed that, and, and then people flooded the streets in support of the prime minister at the time who resigned saying that. And, and then, and sectarian slogans were once again yelled on the streets. We have to ask ourselves, is it our fault or is it the ruling class's fault? Mm -hmm. I see. That's, yeah, definitely a, a very historical and contemporary at the same time. There's history that reaches back very far, but it's also definitely coming to a burning point. What have been some of the recent developments? Obviously, October 17th, as you mentioned, that was a while ago, uh, but still protests have continued since has there been still a focus on sort of breaking the change of sectarianism or has it moved to other issues obviously there are there are other issues we can't deny that um but has it remained one of the key focuses of the protests so it is the key focus the demand at the time was for the entire government to resign and for a secular government to come in place mm -hmm. even though we have a power sharing agreement you can still have secular individuals the new government that was formed in january and is acting today and as you know today we are facing economic collapse which means they have failed which brings us back to the power the issue of power sharing and sectarianism the number one issue in the country is sectarianism mm -hmm. um it, it affects our day-to-day -day life uh, it, if, if you belong to a certain political party and that has a prerequisite of being belonging to a certain religion or a sect um, you get more privi privileges mm -hmm. in terms of a job, in terms of uh, food vouchers, food boxes, um, anything, anything, everything you can think of. Where you live and what your religion is plays a huge role. Mm -hmm. And they, the, the most recent development in terms of, let's say, combating and, and shutting up the protesters was that a government was formed. Uh, this was very, not recently now, but uh, its effects are very recent. Uh, and they claimed that it was an independent government. Independent as in they have no ties to any political parties. No ties to political parties means they have no ties to uh, religious sects, religion and sects. 
And yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and this was the most recent approach. But the more you dig into the background of these people, the more we learn that no, these are not civil these are not members of the civil society. These are not Actually, secular individuals and they're still serving the agenda of religious parties and it's it, it's it's boiling it's boiling more and more. I guess uh, one question I have, and this is definitely because I'm not really aware of how the elections or the process works. If there are political parties, let's say, well, yeah, how political, do political parties have to have a religious affiliation or can you have one party that just runs not on a religious basis? No, political parties don't have to have a religious affiliation, okay. but they do. And that is why they this do. is an issue today. Uh, we have a couple of political parties, not much, that have no affiliation to any religion, secular parties, and the candidates run as civil, members of the civil society. But it's it's perceived as an ab- as an abomination. As you yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's uh, you're 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 an enemy of uh, of religion oh, if see. you're a member of civil society, and that's why they have such yeah. popularity in this. I mean, this is a contemporary issue, but the root cause is the sense of belonging to these political parties, which capitalized on religion as their driving force at the time. Mm-hmm. I see. And yeah, it sort of kept going really in that sense. I think I should, I, I have to explain something and it's that Go ahead. Yeah, religious, religious leaders are prominent in the country, but their leadership is not organic or popular. Um, however, they are, let's say, trained, primed by their institutions. And that's why there is a persistence of the sectarian conflict. But it's important to note that uh, they monopolize on spiritual matters, but they never aim to incite hate. They need to keep this power sharing system going because that's mm-hmm. the only way they will keep their power. The minute, the minute religion is not important in policy making anymore, then what's the point of having they, a power They lose shift? all influence, exactly, really. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then we can actually see some reform. But until mm-hmm. then, it's yeah. all about greed. Yeah, and I, I guess linking this to the contemporary um, economic crisis, which may be a little bit dangerous, there are probably other things involved. Um, but how much is it that sort of religion and sectarian, um, not necessarily conflict, but stagnation has forced the reforms to slow down or not really occur? Like how much is there a link between the lack of reforms and the continued kind of sectarian politics? Okay, so uh, obviously, you know, the importance of social integration, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, If you have a healthy society, then you're going to have a healthy economy. At the very least, there's there's some sort of link there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Number one, there is a suppression of healthy social integration of different sects among each other. So even across the country, except for the main cities, if you go to a certain uh, area, you'll know what sect lives in that area. And that's that's the number one thing to, to talk about. Uh, very recently, there was a company that refused to hire um, employees unless they belong to a certain sect and a certain political party. Wow, that is problematic. <laughs> that is very problematic. So you're not you're no longer hiring people based on their qualifications, but rather you're 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 hiring them on the basis that who they what they believe in and and that's the basis you're going through and it's manipulative, right? Mm-hmm. And 
because of this greed and because of the power sharing system, they ultimately have to decide on how much profit of a certain thing goes to us. I'm going to talk about an issue, which is the legalization of the growth of cannabis or marijuana. Uh, Lebanon has a very unique uh, marijuana plant, a cannabis plant. And however, it is not legalized in the country. Uh, Very recently, they legalized the growth. But to get a permit is a whole other story. You still cannot get a permit. However, you can grow. And why can't you get a permit? And it's because we believe that to this date, they haven't decided on the profit division that goes to each political party and sect. Mm-hmm, I see. So that, and that's not only about uh, cannabis and marijuana, but it goes. But that's a wider, wider issue where they have to imagine any issue, really. You have to think, oh, well, what about this and this and this sect and this Absolutely. sect? Absolutely. Rather than. And just to, to take it a step further, Lebanon is a small country. We need foreign intervention. We need an influx of money. At the time being, the country is collapsing. Without mm-hmm. going into much detail, the political instability, the division, and the influence of these parties has, mm-hmm. has, has stopped funds from coming into the country because of their political belief. So the negotiations with the IMF yeah. very recently have failed for that yeah. reason. And now we're looking at negotiations with China. And certain political parties are against negotiations with China. So you have this back and forth going on that's just... Mm-hmm. It's hurting the people. It's really hurting the people. And so the current government you mentioned, they were they were elected with an idea of being secular, with an idea of not being affiliated with parties, but necess- but they were nonetheless. What is there is it almost what's what's stopping just a technocratic or a, not necessarily technocratic, but a government that is supported by a all sides? A technocratic government was our demand. What's stopping it is you cannot, you try. So they claim that this new government is technocratic. They claim that's their claim, but it's not. I see. It's not a technocratic. And they say that they're technocratic, but they have, you know, their own, their own affiliations on the side. But the moment your personal belief goes into policymaking in the country, that is sectarianism. You're, 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 you're stopping yep. the growth yep. of an entire country. And so not only is national unity deteriorating, but you're also deter- the, the ruling class themselves don't know what's going on. And you get to a point where mm-hmm. for, if intervention at the very, you know, getting aid should not be this problematic. A country whose people are dying of hunger. Mm-hmm. It should not be this difficult to get money to save the people. We're a country of mm-hmm. 4 million Lebanese citizens. Mm-hmm. And a very high refugee capacity. So there's, it's not, it's not, it's not yep. looking good. It's, it's, yeah, it's difficult. Yeah. Well, I guess my sort of last question, and always a dangerous one, which is looking into a crystal ball. What do you think are the next steps? What, what do you think? Well, an evaluation of what you think is happening next. Will the government? Be able to continue? Will they just stagnate and more protests and be replaced? Um, what do you think is uh, the protests yeah. haven't stopped? Every day there is a protest. Very late at night, mm-hmm. the army breaks them up before they can escalate. But every day there is a protest, and I was one of the people who was on the streets. Mm-hmm. I'm no longer on the streets. Mm-hmm. I now and and I should. I I probably should be looking into a crystal ball. I think if the government does not make 
if, if, if no serious reform is in place soon, we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. And it's only a matter of time before people turn against their leaders because hunger is the greatest evil yep. there is known to mankind. And at one point, people are going to put their religious... Uh, and we've seen that. We saw that happen in October 17. We're seeing it happen today. More and more people are leaving their affiliated political parties, but it's so slow. I think what's going to happen is unless mm-hmm. urgent reform is in place, people are just going to turn against the government and we're going to witness severe economic collapse, severe um, hunger across the entire country. And it's going to take a while for us to get mm. back on our feet. I don't know what the st- status of sectarianism is going to be then. But as long as it is institutionalized and as long as the power sharing system is in yes, place, I truly do not believe any of our problems are going to be solved. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Any final comments you want to make? I think that was quite a, uh, a, a touching kind of end to it. And I think, yeah, thank you very much for sort of looking into the. the I don't have any final comments. Well. Really yeah, but thank you well. for, uh, for having this conversation with me. Yep. No, we're always definitely happy to sort of be a platform here as well for for listening to people who are going through it right now. Well, that brings probably the most touching ending to a Great European Talks podcast we've had so far. Um, quite a short one today because, of course, there were only the two of us, but we hope you listeners enjoyed. Um, thank you very much to Marion for joining us all the way from Lebanon. I hope you enjoyed. Thank you so much for having me. I did have a really good time. <laughs> You're very welcome. We'll, we'll definitely well, we'll invite you back to, to future ones as well. Um, all that's left is just thank you listeners for being here. Um, make sure to follow us on all social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. Uh, Mariam, is there anywhere they can follow you if they're interested in keeping in touch? I have my private, my you know, my personal Instagram account and Facebook ah, account. Okay. So, but it's Mariam Monsef and I do post about the issues there as well. Exactly, exactly. I think we'll do that a bit more in the future, maybe seeing where some of the... the the people coming onto the podcast are going from so in case any listeners are interested they can follow well that's all for this week uh, next week we'll be discussing about uh an episode 16 i believe it's uh, eurasia so hopefully join some of our uh, editors and writers and speakers from there um, all that's left is once again to thank the people here and have a wonderful week to all of our listeners goodbye Bye.